Well, good morning. If you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of Ecclesiastes, not Hebrews, book of Ecclesiastes. And if you are using the Pew Bible, it'll be page 553. As you turn there, let me just say this briefly. We're, we're starting a, a new series this fall in the book of Ecclesiastes. And um, one, um, you might have noticed, looking at the cover of your bulletin, I'm sure you're thinking, well, this is going to be fun. Can't wait. This is going to be exciting. And, um, you know, I can, I can sympathize. Um, as we read this and as we continue through this this fall, this is wisdom literature. Uh, it's, a, it's a genre of scripture. We see it in the Psalms. We see it in the Proverbs. We see it in uh, the Song of Solomon as well. And I think that's a good place to start as we begin to read something that might not be easy for us to hear or listen to. Or we might even think, what's the point of doing this? Um, wisdom is just that. It, it takes time and effort and patience. Um, it takes pursuit. And it oftentimes isn't something that comes to us as fun. <laughs> doesn't give us necessarily those cheap thrills, if you will. There's no goosebumps oftentimes at the end of wisdom. And uh, maybe I'm just nervous or I'm just wanting to set the expectations as we open and read the book of Ecclesiastes, the introduction, uh, as an introduction ourselves to this series. Um, it has a lot to teach us, and I'm looking forward to diving into that with you all this fall. So with that, let's give our attention to the reading of God's word found in the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to read the prologue and the ending. We're going to do the, tell you everything that this book is about right here in this sermon. Um, and then we're going to start a new fall series next week. No, just kidding. Just kidding. So this will be verses 1 to 11 in chapter 1, and then we'll flip on over to chapter 12 and read verses um, actually 7 to 14. I changed that. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the winds return. The wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing at which, is, which it is said, see, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. There is no re- remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. And then on to chapter 12, beginning in verse 8. Verse 8 is how the book ends. And then verses 9 to 14 is the epilogue, the conclusion. So verse 8, here's how it ends. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and uh, arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, be aware of anything beyond these 
of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Amen. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we ask that you would do a miracle. And by a miracle, we pray that you would soften hardened hearts towards your word and towards yourself. So that as we come to this scripture that you have given us, and for many reasons, many reasons we, we don't even know yet, that you would open our eyes and our ears, that we would see and hear things otherwise we could not. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, as mentioned, we're titling this series, Life, Toil, and Death. Is this it? And in one sense, it is. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes is going to tell us. It is it. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, it invites us to see that the vapor that is our lives, right? That one day we will die and no one will ever remember us, but life will go on without us. That life, toil, and death, that this is it. And this book invites us to embrace it. On the other hand, this isn't it, right? That isn't the end of the story. Life, toil, and death is not all that there is. And this book invites us to embrace that as well. And so there's an immediate tension there. And one of the ways this book does that is by getting us to rethink meaning and purpose in our lives. What are we here for? Does our work matter? Why does it matter? And see, we love meaning and purpose in our culture today. These are words that we speak a lot of. These are terms that we use. We, we say things like, I just want to do meaningful work. I want my life to be meaningful. I want my life to have purpose. We all want to find purpose and meaning in our lives. But what's interesting about this is we don't want to find meaning and purpose in our lives. And I, and I say that to mean this, what one pastor writes, is that oftentimes in our search for purpose and meaning, what happens when we find that that purpose and meaning sort of conflicts with what we want for our life? What happens when that purpose and meaning that we want in our lives conflicts with the way that we want to live our lives? What if that purpose and meaning doesn't answer all the questions? What if it doesn't send you in the direction that you feel like you should be going in? What if it doesn't fully satisfy right now? How should I live? And that's what this sermon is about, the book of Ecclesiastes. It is considered a sermon. And it invites us to see and gain wisdom for how to live in a world where life, toil, and death seems to be all that there is. But how we are able to still find joy and meaning in the midst of it. And the way Ecclesiastes does this is to try is not by trying to fix the world, not by trying to offer solutions to the problems that we have at this point, but by fixing our perspectives. That's the lens we're going to have for this book as we move forward. It's, it's trying to fix our perspectives, a perspective that has to have Jesus at the center of our lives in order to have any real meaning and purpose moving forward. A purpose that says, as I look around this world and I see um, all that is going on in my life and I see what, all that is going on in, in, in the lives of those around me, that at some point there is this longing for Eden. This longing for Eden inside all of us to return there, to return to the place where things are right. We are looking for a home, as it were. 
as we navigate this life, this frustrating life, and the question that we're presented is, where is it? Where is it? Where is that home? And that is the question that the book of Ecclesiastes is answering or asking and answering. We, we believe that this book is written by Solomon. Um, some disagree with that, but for our purposes, um, that's not really important and it doesn't really move us away from the focus of this book. Verse 1 tells us that the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, that would be Solomon. So we're going to refer to to the author as the pastor Solomon. Um, As I said earlier, this book is uh, written as wisdom literature, and that's important for us. And being wisdom literature, this will not read as one of Paul's epistles. It won't read as the book of Hebrews. Um, This book won't actually give us solutions. It won't even give us redemption uh, in many ways. It won't talk about Jesus. What this book will do is speak of the nature of life, the way things are, and it seeks to answer the question, then how should we live? Where is that long, where, where is the home for that longing for eating, Eden that is in all of us? When we begin reading Ecclesiastes, we start with a prologue that contains the summary of the pastor's findings. That is what we just read. It begins in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanities. This is the summary statement of everything that he has concluded of what we will actually travel through in the coming weeks. And then how does that book end? Vanity. It's all vanity. It is all meaningless. That's what we read in verse 7 of chapter 12. So let's close in prayer, okay? Many of us read this and we think, so there is no meaning in life, right? We hear this and we think, what are, what are the, why even go forward? Like, here's the summary, right? You're giving me the, the ending and the beginning and the ending already. <clears throat> Shouldn't we just sort of go about our lives, try to find uh, a little bit of happiness along the way until we die? And that would be the end of it. But to understand Ecclesiastes, which is what we're going to do this morning, we have to understand this word, what vanity really means. That's about all we're going to have time to do this morning, but that's a good way for an introduction for us. What does this word vanity mean? And to get at that, and this is not on your handout, um, there's sort of three things that we're going to look at for our time. That is, what does vanity mean? What does vanity describe? And what does vanity promise? What does vanity mean? What does vanity describe? And what does it promise? In an interview with Andrew Garfield during the making of the Martin Scorsese film Silence, where Andrew plays this Jesuit priest in the movie uh, who goes out in the Pacific West um, as a missionary. Uh, In preparation for this part, Andrew went and spent time with this Jesuit priest in New York to these things that they they called exercises. And these exercises were uh, practices of Catholic Christian, Christian living to sort of get into the part. And he did this for a year. Um, to study the, the Bible, to, to, to look at the church history, to um, learn how to pray, these kinds of things. And in this interview, this is, this is one of the things that Andrew says about himself as he went to these exercises. At first, not really a religious person. He says, like Ignatius, who, Catholic saint, before him, Garfield was, Andrew Garfield, was a young person looking for his own place in the world. And like many of us, beneath this longing, he carried a deep fear, a fear that he wasn't good enough. The main thing that I wanted to heal, Garfield says, that I brought to the exercises was this feeling of not enoughness. 
This feeling of that forever longing for the perfect expression of this thing that is inside each of us, that wound of not enoughness, that wound of feeling like what I have to offer is never enough. And I start here in this first point because in so few words, the wound of not enoughness is a universal wound that embodies what is meant by the word vanity, which is translated in the Hebrew as Havel. That is the word that starts out this letter, the sermon, and that is the word that ends it, Havel. And it has a large range of meaning. It means breath. <clears throat> Actually, when you hear it in the Hebrew, it's essentially like that. So the, the little sounding of that word tells you what it means, which I love that about the Hebrew. It means vapor, it means temporary, meaningless, senseless, frustration, absurd, incomprehensible, empty. More visual, it is a striving after the wind or a bubble. And it's a word that shows up throughout this entire book, but also throughout scripture. One of the first places it shows up, interesting enough, is in Genesis 4. A big portion of this book hides itself in Genesis 3 and 4. Why? Because that is where sin entered the world. In Genesis 4, we read of Adam and Eve, and this is after they have sinned and God has uh, forced them out of the garden to live out the rest of their days under the heat of the sun by the sweat of their brow where death will be the result of everything they touch and do. When we look closer at Genesis 3, God gives Adam and Eve curses, and some of you might be familiar with this, and he gives curses that actually specifically frustrate life. In Adam's case, it's his work. And in Eve's case, it's in her childbearing. But the point of the curses is to say this. Whatever you do in this life, whatever brings you joy, even what you've been created to do, all of that will never work the way that it should. That is the curse. That is the penalty for sin. Adam, I will curse the ground so that in all that you do, thorns and thistles will be the result. In other words, you will toil with that work. And it'll never produce exactly what you want it to produce. Your work will be frustrated. It will seem meaningless at times. And ultimately the ground will win because that is where you will return. For out of it you were taken and and for you are dust and to dust you shall return. So by the time we get to Genesis 4, or I should say in the midst of these curses, God promises also, he promises a man. He promises an offspring who will come into this world through Eve, woman, and reverse this curse. This is all Genesis 3. And this is Jesus. And it's all there, right there in the beginning. So by the time we get to Genesis 4, though, Eve has these two children, and we know them by the names of Cain and Abel. When Cain is born, Eve exclaims, God has given me the man. And when you read that in the Hebrew, you notice that she is referring to this specific man that God promised back in Genesis 3. The man who would come along and be the solution, the offspring, who would be the solution to this problem, this curse in which we now live. And she is excited about that because now she believes that this deliverer that God has given her, Cain, will end the frustration of this world. But then she gets pregnant again and she has another boy. And you know what she names him? Abel. And you know what Abel is in the Hebrew? It's Havel. It's Havel. 
Why, why does she name him Havel? What is he saying? One, it's clear that God has not sent the man, is what Eve is saying, right here in Genesis 4. But two, it, she's also saying, by naming her son Havel, that this side of the garden is going to continue to be hard, it's going to continue to be frustrating, and it's going to seem meaningless, and we are going to have to wait. Like a vapor, like trying to catch the wind. This life is the wound of not enoughness for Eve. Now notice, and this is very important for Ecclesiastes, but notice here in Genesis 4, Eve is saying that this, she is saying all this in light of relationship with God. She is not saying that God has left her. She is speaking to what is now true because of disobedience. Because of why they are where they are, which is on them. It's because of what sin has caused. This life that we now live is going to be frustrated. It's going to seem meaningless. Brother is going to turn on brother. People are going to use each other. They are going to steal and they are going to get away with it. Faithful people who never harmed anyone are going to die at young ages for no apparent reason. The creation itself is going, is not going to function as it was intended to function. In fact, Paul uses in the Greek, the very same word that they're using here in the Hebrew and Romans eight for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to fertility, to vanity, to frustration, to vapor, meaninglessness. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's Romans 8. This is what Havel means. It is futility. It is vanity. It is frustration. And it's been a theme since Adam and Eve were kicked out of paradise. This is the first point. The second point is what is vanity describing then? What, what, what is the use of this word that we'll be looking at a lot in this book? What is it describing? What is this vantage point? And what we see here is that vanity, Havel, is describing God's world as his people experience it. And you've got to see that. The best way to describe it is not enoughness, as we've said. This vapor, this frustration but it's describing God's world as his people experience it. Now, is this book describing life without God? And this is an important distinction about this book, Ecclesiastes. A lot of people think that this is a book of, of somebody who's going along and giving the perspective of what it means to live a pagan life or a life that, that, that is without God at its center. And, and that is not what this book is about. The idea of being under the sun is not a life without God. Under the sun is a term that refers to, to life, seeing life, Describing its experiences as the, as the world that God has created. Like Eve and Paul, the use of this word does not describe a world or life without God, but rather it describes God's world as his people experience it. And this is a major key going forward to understanding the book of Ecclesiastes. So in other words, Ecclesiastes invites us to stop pretending that the world isn't frustrated by sin and brokenness. To stop pretending that often this world appears meaningless. 
I have a cousin who lives in Ohio. His name is Johnny. And this month documents uh, the nine-year nine anniversary that my cousin was in this accident that left him paralyzed from the waist down. And uh, this was just a horrific event. It was actually, uh, interesting enough, it was in the aftermath of Hurricane Ike that came through. And um, Johnny, uh, just as this person, if you met him, just one of the happiest, just brings light, brightens up the room, you know. And he was actually, um, in, in, in the aftermath of Ike, reaching Ohio, by the way, <clears throat> was helping a neighbor out who um, just... With, with, because of the storm and because of what was going on, was out there in this person's yard. And it just so happened that that time that he was there, that as the winds were coming through, that it knocked this tree over. It broke this limb on this tree and it fell on him and it left him paralyzed from the waist down. And we all got the news of this and it was just unthinkable. Like, what are the odds of Johnny being in this place, right? This spot at this particular time where this hurricane that came up through the Gulf of Mexico, and by the way, he lives in Ohio. What are the odds of this happening? But more than that, why? Why? And if you're watching this, what do you make of it? All he was doing was helping someone in need. What's the point of this accident? And see, this is life as we experience it under the sun. And there's a sense that the church is afraid to acknowledge that, to be honest about that. That God did not forsake Johnny, right? And even to acknowledge that, to, 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 to say what is true about what we see and experience is not saying that everything is meaningless. It's just describing what it is. That I'm seeing the pastor is using this word because he wants to show us what it looks like to be honest about the world that God has made, but that we have messed up because of sin. And he wants Christians to be able to do that, that no matter who you are, this world doesn't work right. It doesn't work the way it was supposed to work, and it's okay to be honest about that. And one of the reasons this book is so important for us today, one of the reasons why I think, why we are reading, doing this book this fall, is that I believe that we are almost afraid to agree with the pastor at this point. Instead, we like to pretend that this world is no longer frustrated. And as a result, we are so quick to explain away or give understanding to what is going on around us. We rush in with phrases like, God has a purpose for this. He is going to use this. You watch. And look, I get that. And we're actually going to talk about that because God does have purposes. And he does have a plan. But Ecclesiastes helps us to not rush in there first, but to actually enter into that experience. Because we as Christians are the ones who should understand more than any that this is where we live. We are not in Eden. We are not in glory. We live in a place that has been frustrated because of the fall. And that means things like this happen. So starting from this perspective, we actually then begin to enter into the wisdom of this book that the church needs so desperately. And that is this, that friends, understanding it all, having the answers for somebody or yourself is not a precondition. For faithful obedience. 
This is going to be a theme for us throughout the whole fall here through this book. Because we struggle. We struggle with experiencing what's going on out here in the world with the promises of God as well and trying to tie up what it means to be faithful and obedient. And we tie that little bow with answers. We got to know. I know exactly why this happened because God's going to bring people to himself through it. And Ecclesiastes is saying, no, you don't. And you know what? That's not even the point. The point is, you're to be faithful and to fear the Lord and obey him without understanding. Can you do that? Can you do that? Finding answers in general is never going to satisfy you. But the pastor will go further to to that and he'll say that the answers will, will, will actually, they won't even be available to you. So what are you going to do with that? And as Christians, we have to learn what it means to be faithful to God in the midst of not understanding or getting answers to the things that happen under this world. And the Bible is giving us freedom to look around and not be afraid to describe what we see because God promised it was going to be like this. That's what Havel is describing. At the same time, that doesn't mean that he is not with us. At the same time, it doesn't mean that he is somehow gone. Friends, God said it would be like this in Ecclesiastes invites us to remember that to stop pretending things are okay and to learn to live in light of this reality. When commentary says that Ecclesiastes is a commentary on life after the fall in Genesis 3. And we either live with this reality in view or we pretend Right? We scheme, which will be another uh, word we'll hear actually next week. We scheme ways to create a life that causes us to live as though the fall is not even real. And what are some of the ways that we scheme that we'll look at more um, you know, intently next week? Education is a big one. Right? Money. Right? If I can create a, get enough money, right? if I can create a world around me to rise above the fallenness of this world, then maybe that'll, that'll, that'll satisfy other ways that we scheme um, are through joy and through laughter, through pleasure is one of the ways that we scheme. That if we just pursue a life of pleasure, we can just sort of ignore what is really going on around me. That we can ignore the things that we see going on in the news and not have to be affected by it. This is one of the reasons that the preacher will say things like a man's death is better than the day of his birth. Which, if you're like me, that just sounds backwards. But it should cause us to listen. That's why it's wisdom. <clears throat> but we come up with all these schemes to get, to get above the fall of this world to pretend. And the preacher is saying, don't do that. There is no meaning. There's no meaningness in that. There's no, there's, there's, there's no end to that. That's going to give you what you are looking for under the sun. And as unappealing as that sounds, maybe that's a good place for us to be here for this moment. And why? Because for the moment when we pause to consider to be okay with what it is that we see out there, for that moment, we're being real. We're being honest about this place that God has created. And we're okay with that tension. We're also able to listen to the longing for Eden in our hearts, which I'm arguing is what the pastor is trying to get you to do through this letter. To listen for that longing. And, and we learn 
to live without answers in the midst of that. Instead, we learn faithfulness to a God who promises to fix this place. Zach Aswine has a great commentary, and he says this about living in the midst of toil, that we get wonderful signs that witness to this still-meaning world. And he says, God created us. His good gifts remain for us and for our joy. Counterfeit gifts, forged advantages, and pleasures now abound like weeds bent on choking out the flower bed. Everything is without meaning now. But there are those flowers that, are, that, that still bloom, these leftover beauties that do not quit. These small voices give witness still to the, to the moaning world. Honesty doesn't mean without hope. What does Havel describe? It describes God's world as we experience it. And that is one of the things we'll be taking with us as we go throughout this book this fall. <clears throat> Lastly, what, is, what does this word promise us? What does Havel promise? Havel, the word vapor, also translated that way, um, promises us that nothing under the sun here will satisfy. <clears throat> there is no gain at the side of glory. And the sooner, one of the things that the preacher will talk about, the sooner as we accept that, the sooner we're able to allow wisdom into our lives to learn how to, how to live. To learn how to have meaning in this world. But there is nothing to gain here, um, this side of glory, because death has made it so. And so what should we do? How should we live? And as we, op- as we continue on in this summary, in this prologue, uh, we see that he answers that question, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And he's answered that. Nothing. That's nothing to gain. But look with me in verses 4 here uh, for this point and, and on through to verse 8. He says, the generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around it goes and on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. What is the picture here? What is the creation gain? It seems nothing. And Gibson, in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, writes this, is the point is that the world itself doesn't seem to go or get anywhere. That's what the preacher is telling us. For everything is cyclical rather than linear, so why should humans get anywhere as well? The sun does not go down, or the sun goes down, and he does the same thing over and over again as we read. The wind goes around and around. The streams try to fill up the sea, but it's frustrated, right? It can't do it. And then they return to the same place where they began. What do they gain? Nothing. It just starts all over the next day, much like our work, much like our lives. The preacher is showing us that nothing seems to satisfy under the sun. Living in a fallen and frustrating world does this. He continues, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. See, not only does creation seem to experience this, but so do we. We were created with sight and hearing, but it never seems satisfied. It never gets its fill. Have you ever wondered why seeing the prettiest beaches, right? Or the best works of art, that they always leave you wanting more. Vacation never is enough. It isn't. 
My eyes want more. My ears want more. It's the same with every good thing that we have here. The same with sex. The same with much, much needed uh, vacation and rest, food and drink, all those things. We have the biggest hopes and expectations for these things in life, but they never quite deliver as we thought or hoped. We always want more. That's what it's like to live in this world. He continues, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new <clears throat> under the sun. Is there a thing of which we can say, yeah, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after us. The pastor certainly isn't saying that new things don't come about. He certainly didn't have the iPhone in mind, right? Didn't have amazing, right, 55 flat, inch TV, flat screen TVs with 4K, you know, digital, to watch football games, all that stuff. Isn't that new? Well, that's not what the pastor's saying. And this gets back to the point here. What he means is that there is nothing new that you and I can discover on this earth that is going to satisfy the longing in your heart for Eden. That's his point. Because the fall is real, the wound of not enoughness is this world. And nothing under the sun is going to fix that. This is what Havel promises. This is what it means. This is what it describes. Are we excited? Are you not entertained? Right? So what's the conclusion? How should we live? What should we do? I think a better question in the coming weeks for us is how should we see? What is our perspective and what does this wisdom of this book have to offer us in changing what we see and changing our perspective? Here's how the prologue ends. You will live and die and a hundred years will go by and nobody will ever remember that you were here. And you can choose to fight against that or you can choose to accept that. And the pastor is inviting you to accept that. That when we begin to recognize that about our lives, we can begin to begin carving out not just meaningful and purposeful lives, but lives of joy, with lives of satisfaction, right? But here's the advice that he gives us at the end of this sermon, after he comes to this conclusion. This is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. And if you're like me at this point, look, I'm not going to lie. I wanted a little bit more. Wanted a little bit more. So you went through and you did all that. And this is your conclusion. Fear God and obey his commandments. Are you kidding me? I, gotta, I came here. I got dressed up for this. But maybe that's the point. Maybe that's the point. You know, how do we hold these two things together that we live in this frustrated world? Where we don't have to pretend. Where our ask, he's asking us not to pretend. But at the same time, we're called to be faithful and obedient in the midst of that. And the connecting point of that is wisdom. How do we do that? Could we come back ready to listen? Ready to figure that out um, as we, to be patient as we figure that out, to travel along in this book? What is our perspective as we leave here today? What are our lives about? And what we can say is this, is that Ecclesiastes, living under the sun, and I'll leave you here, shows us a broken and frustrated world that we do not have to be afraid of describing it that way, of being honest about it. It is, it is an acknowledging of the not enoughness that is this world, but that God did not reject either. 
He's not throwing this away. In fact, the story continues uh, in, in a, almost this marvelous twist where he doesn't throw it away, right? And that, you know, he doesn't get rid of it. He doesn't burn it. He doesn't trash it. He actually what? He enters the Havel, as it were. He enters those things and he experiences it himself. This is the story of Christianity, right? That Jesus would come to this earth, that he would walk around, get dust between his toes, watch death destroy everything that he had created for the purpose of what? Redeeming it, of fixing the frustration. And the hope that lies within this book is learning how to make that the center of your life. In the midst of what you see going on around you, that is real too. Not pretending, not trying to escape the matter, but recognizing that both things are true at the exact same time. And in the midst of that, not looking for answers, not looking for understanding, not demanding those things as if we have a right to do that. That it is somehow some qualification for obedience and faithfulness to this God who would enter this frustration with you in order to fix it. In order to give you new perspectives, in order to give you new eyes, in order to give you new purposes, in order to give you a new name. And that's the decision before us as we leave here this morning. Is our life going to be centered around building a name for ourselves, seeking to create or build things that we think will last forever but really don't? Or should we go about this world just experiencing all the pleasures that we can, get out of it what you can? Because it's, we're, we're all going to die. Or should we live with another perspective in mind? And if so, what should that be? Well, welcome to Ecclesiastes. Right? Where the author is not set on giving you solutions, giving you answers. Not trying to fix the world, but trying to fix your perspective of it. And in so doing, discover true joy, happiness, purpose, and meaning Through a God, Jesus Christ, who is committed to fixing these things, who takes the longings for Eden that are in all of our hearts and gives them a new home. Amen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we begin this new series, uh, that you would give us patience, that you would give us an ear to listen to the wisdom of this book. We pray also that you would open our eyes to the gospel of Ecclesiastes as well. That you would help us to see Jesus and what he came to do to have richer meaning, richer significance than just to come and to die for my sins. And we become in the midst of that folks, followers who, whose faith is strengthened And who are willing to fear and obey you in light of the answers and the understanding that we do not receive under the sun. Would you have patience with us? Would you be merciful to us and gracious to us? And bring us back next week. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.